We're going to study God's Word together, so if you've got a Bible, let me encourage you to open it up to the New Testament book of 1 John. Uh, we're walking through this letter that the Apostle John wrote uh, to the church and studying it progressively, one chapter at a time. We love to do this as a church, just to walk through God's Word and benefit and glean from what God says to his people in his word. So this is John, the great apostle, the one who was there at the foot of the cross holding his, Jesus' mother when Jesus was dying. This was John who was still walking with Jesus 60 years after that moment. He was the last man standing, the last disciple writing. Uh, and then he finishes writing in exile, the book of Revelation. He writes it from the island of Patmos. He is a, he is a person you want to know tell me how to be a disciple. If there's one person you could ask in ancient history, tell me what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. John surely has to be at the top of the list. So we're gonna study this together, but before we get here, just a big picture statement that's in your worship guide, in your study guide, let me just fill this in. So big picture, John's three tests of true discipleship. We talked about this a couple weeks ago by way of introduction, and we'll just review it here because we're starting into this. So the obedience test, basically we keep his commands. So that's, the, that's a test of true discipleship. Are we keeping his commands? There's an obedience test. There's, there's a love test. Are we serving? Are we encouraging? Are we meeting one another's needs in the body of Christ? Is there a display of genuine unity in the body of Christ. And then there's a truth test. Are we embracing the message concerning Jesus? Are we committed to the gospel, the message that was once for all delivered to the saints? Are we tampering with it? Are we trying to improve it? Or are we taking it as gold? Are we taking it as gospel, as the message from God for us? So that's why this series is called Signs of Life, is because John, in this letter, gives us three marks of the believer, three tests. There's a test for that, right? There's, there's something that we can, a, a sort of scan that John is running on Christians so that we can see and come away with deepened assurance. Here's the big, here's the big picture, right? So there's an author above the author. John is the human author. He's writing in language that he's familiar with, but God is superintending the writing of this letter. So God is leaning toward his people, and what's he saying? In essence, he's saying, I want you to know that you know me. I don't want you just to know me, of course, that's, that's the big thing, but I want you also to know, I want you to be secure, I want you to be assured that you have the real thing. So that's why we're studying this letter. If you would follow along with me, I'm gonna start reading. First John chapter two, we're gonna pick up right where we left off last week. So we left off last week in verse two. This week we start in verse three. This is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. The one who says I've come to know him and yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar. By the way, there's no New Testament author that calls people liars more than John. He, he, tends to do that, right? He, the one who doesn't keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the word you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command, which is true in him 
and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. I, am writing, I have written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong, and God's word remains in you, and you have conquered the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. Uh, my friend, our friend, Ray Ortland, the former and just retired pastor of Emmanuel Church in Nashville, said something a few years ago that was gripping to me. He said it about the city in which he served as pastor in Nashville, but it's also true for the city that we live in here in Birmingham. So I'm going to apply his words to Birmingham. And here's, here's the idea, that the dominant false religion in Birmingham, Alabama, is not Islam. It's the dominant re false religion in Birmingham, Alabama is not New Age spirituality. It's not Mormonism or, or a cult. The dominant false religion in Birmingham, Alabama is defective Christianity. Christianity is malfunctioning in Birmingham, Alabama. Cultural Christianity prevails right here in the buckle of the Bible belt. Cultural Christianity is what the New Testament speaks about, this, this occurrence where people have what, what the New Testament writers call a form of godliness but without power. It's a form, it has the outward rituals, it, it looks Christian-ish, but it doesn't have transforming internal fire. It's not changing the interior of the heart, right? So many right here in our part of the country embrace that kind of cultural Christianity. They think that they can believe on a half Christ. They think they can take the Savior part and leave aside the Lord part, right? You can believe on, you kind of pick and choose the sides of Jesus that you want, that you can choose his forgiveness, everybody loves forgiveness, and you can deny him his right to lead the way. You can deny him his right to call the shots, and that just won't work in the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't comprehend that kind of, of Christianity. And so God in his kindness gives us 1 John to address just that kind of reality because he wants us to have the real thing, not to be duped by false versions or cheap versions of Christianity that purport to be Christian but aren't in fact Christian. He wants us to have the real thing and then he wants us to know we have the real thing. Enter First John. That's what this letter is all about. So in your notes, here's something for us to think about. What 
could be more important than having a settled assurance that you know God and belong to him? What could possibly be more important than having a settled assurance that you do indeed know God, his life is in you, you have been changed, regeneration is a reality, you do belong to him. So three signs of life that John addresses in his letter, we're going to cover two of them today and then one of them next week. The first is this, the obedience test. The obedience test. So if you're taking notes, write down these five words. Very simply, disciples of Jesus obey Jesus. Right? How simple is that? Disciples of Jesus obey Jesus. It, it is incredible to me that there has been theological controversy over that non-controversial, completely uncontroversial New Testament truth. Disciples of Jesus obey Jesus. Look again at verse 3, and you'll see where I'm getting this. This is how we know that we know him. If we keep his commands, obedience is a sign of life. Keep going. Verse 4, the one who says, he's just going to keep drilling down. The one who says I've come to know him and yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. You wonder, where is John getting this? Well, this is John, the same person who wrote the gospel of John and who recorded statements that Jesus made because he was one of the 12. So he walked around with Jesus and he thought about and remembered things that Jesus said. They stuck to him. Here's one of the things that John heard Jesus say. Actually, three things. Right there in John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Same chapter, six verses later. The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Two verses after that, Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, followers of Jesus follow Jesus. Disciples of Jesus obey Jesus. The proof of love is loyalty. We, we demonstrate our love for him by loyalty to him. So come at it from the other side. So that's the, that's the positive way of stating it. Let's come at it from the other side. If you have no interest in obeying what God says, if, if you treat his word lightly, if his commands are of little importance to you, that should be an alarm. That should be a red flag that you may not be a Christian. That's why John comes out with this big word, liar. He's, he's pushing on us there, right? He's pushing on this cultural Christianity. Why? Because we're going to find out later in this letter, people are jettisoning the faith. They're abandoning the faith. And the church is there feeling shaken. Do we have the real thing? Are we also going to turn tail and run because the heat is on under Emperor Domitian? And so John is saying, Here, here's some scans. Here's some ways to to know, to go to God and see the reality of his life is in you. John Stott, the great late New Testament scholar, said this, true love for God is expressed not in sentimental language or mystical experience, but in moral obedience. Say that again. True love for God is expressed not in sentimental language. Anybody can do that, right? Right? or mystical experience, but in moral obedience. So here's the question for us. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Here's the question for you. 
Are you careful to obey Jesus? Well, how do I know how to obey him? These are his words. He, he endorses this as the gold standard. He says, this is authoritative truth. So your master says, all of this is gold. Like, all of this can be trusted. This is my will for your life. So do you obey his word? Well, what's upstream of that? Do we read his word? Are we feeding on his word? Are we listening and heeding and submitted to his word? His commands are here. So let me ask that question a little more specifically. Do the things that you read in God's word or hear when it's preached, does God's word have the authority to send you in a new direction? Does God's word have the authority to correct you? to set a new agenda for your life, to set new direction for your life. So think specifically. Think about specific passages. What about that passage about ungodly speech in Ephesians chapter 4? Let no corrupt communication come from your mouth, but only what gives grace to the hearers and builds them up. What about that verse about lust and pornography in Matthew chapter 5? Have we read that, and is that setting a course? Do we hear God's agenda in that, his agenda for our freedom? What about that verse in Hebrews 10 about faithful church attendance? What about that verse in 1 Timothy 6 about the dangers of the love of money? Do we read those verses and blow off the ones that we don't like and take on board the ones that we're already doing, or do we take it as God's word? Augustine, the, the great fourth century scholar and theologian, he said, you who believe what you like of the gospels and disbelieve what you like, believe yourselves, not the gospels. Oh, that is the bane of our existence in cultural Christianity. We take what we like, we discard what we don't like. We discard what's uncomfortable. We don't want our lives to be reformed, essentially, by the word of God. Here's the thing, though, y'all. When you collide with Jesus Christ, it's going to leave a mark. Essentially, that's what John is saying. When you collide with Jesus, it's going to leave a mark. The Apostle Paul's way of describing it is the old is gone. The old you is gone gone and everything's becoming new you are you are a new creation in Christ Jesus Paul says in 1st Corinthians chapter 6 he says he lists all these sins that Corinth is into the world and the culture in Corinth and he says such were some of you but you were washed you were set apart you were justified now you have the life of God in you and so what does he say after that he says so glorify God with your body he bought you with a price. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to him now. Ryan Broyles, the uh, former wide receiver for the Detroit Lions, before that he played uh, at University of Oklahoma, and he wasn't particularly well-behaved during those years. As a matter of fact, he got arrested for stealing in 2007. He had a thirst for money. He had a thirst for the finer things in life, but you check him out a few years later and he's a fundamentally different man. In 2015, he's making a million dollars a year and he's living off of $60,000 a year. He just becomes this radically generous human being. What happened? What happened was he went on a short-term missions trip to Haiti with about 25 athletes from, the, from Oklahoma University. And uh, they went down there, and he said, my eyes were open to the need in the world. And he said, but beyond that, my eyes were open to Christian faith. 
He said, I saw Christians who had lost everything. This is 2011 when they went down there. So it was after the massive earthquake hit Haiti. And I said, I saw people who had lost everything. And yet they had joy in Christ. And I was utterly mystified by this. He said, I was jealous. His words, in that stripped down, laid bare world, people found joy in their faith. I was jealous for that. And he became a devout follower of Jesus Christ. And his whole view of life and money and possessions and the purpose of possessions completely changed. One short-term missions trip in 2011 and seeing the change in the people of God. Real Christianity turns the commands of God from have-tos to want-tos. That's why in this same letter, John says, his commands are not burdensome. Right? And, and the reason that John says later on in this same letter that his commands aren't burdensome is because he goes on to say, because we've been born again. In other words, because we have a new heart. We have new want-tos. This isn't just some list of rules that sits external to us that now we have to conform to. We have a new heart. We have new desires. So we're not talking here. Please, please hear me. We're not talking about performance-driven Christianity here. We're not talking about moralism and Phariseeism, earning your way in to the grace of God or earning your way to heaven through religious obedience. No, I want to be really clear. Obedience doesn't make you a Christian. You don't become a Christian by your performance. We're Christians because of the per perfect performance of someone else. We're Christians because Jesus came and performed in our place. Jesus perfectly obeyed the law of God. He lived a perfectly holy life so that he could give that perfect record to you the moment you believe in what he did at the cross. That's the glory of the gospel. Someone else came and did what we could never do and did what we haven't done and what we can't do. He came and perfectly obeyed hands us that record the moment that we believe in him. He dies on the cross to take our blame and to pay the penalty for our sin against God. So in other words, if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, it's because of this. It's because God did everything necessary to save you. Not most of what's necessary to save you. He did everything that was necessary to save you. The Father put your sins on his son Jesus who died in your place. Then the Holy Spirit in history, the day that you came to faith, the Holy, the Holy Spirit found you at your home address, located you in the world, opened your heart to the gospel, gave you a new heart, took away your stony heart, gave you a fleshy, responsive heart. You're no longer cold to God, you're alive. You're alive to him, he made you alive. He overcame your resistance. In theology, the word for that is called regeneration. You were dead, suddenly you were alive. And that was the Holy Spirit's work. You didn't make yourself come alive. He brought you to life. And suddenly, what happened? Suddenly, now that you're alive, you don't want Jesus to be an addition to your life. You want Jesus to give you the mission for your life. You want him calling the shots. You love him because he first loved you. You trust him with the keys, with everything, right? You give your whole life over to him because there's no one who's loved you like he has loved you. That's the gospel. That's the central message of the Bible. Maybe that's why you're here this morning. Maybe God brought you here this morning just to hear that part. 
Maybe even in hearing that story of what God has done to save us from our sins, our brokenness, maybe that's what God's gonna use to open your heart to him, to take you by the hand and lead you into grace and lead you into his forgiveness and his transforming power. I pray that that's happening even in the room right now. Only God can do that. I pray that's happening right now. He's stirring. He's turning lights on. And if that happens, run in his direction. Believe in him. Turn from sin. Trust in Christ. Do that today, friend. And when you do, realize this. Your life is turned now in a radically new direction. Now, now you're facing him. That's what John's talking about in verse 15. Look at verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So there's a, this radical reorientation to the world. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. So remember, he's using that word world over and over again, right? So every time a word is used in the Bible, it doesn't always mean the same exact thing. Sometimes world means the created order. Sometimes world means, for God so loved the world, meaning the badness and the bigness of the world. Sometimes, so it, it can mean different things in different contexts. The context decides, right? So in context, what does he mean by world? He doesn't mean the natural order. He doesn't mean trees and leaves and stuff. And you know that because you look at verse 16. For everything in the world, and he doesn't start naming items in creation, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's possessions. In other words, the word world here is a metaphor for the undertow of defiance against God in, that we feel in this world, that we feel in our culture. No matter where you live, no matter what culture you're a part of, every culture has its own ways of replacing God with something else. That's what John is talking about. There's this undertow, no matter where you are in the world, and it's pulling us away from God. It's a, it's a systemic undertow. It's everywhere. You can't escape it. And John goes on to say that this is the definition of the Christian. The Christian knows, verse 17, that the world with its lust is passing away. What does he mean? In other, in other words, John is saying Christians have seen what's behind the curtain. Christians know now. They know that Rome's power in the first century is fading power. Rome's glory is fading glory. Rome's lust is fading temporary pleasure that leaves a bitter aftertaste. Christians know now. We've seen behind the curtain. We know this world is passing away. And so we live for another world. We live with an eternal perspective. In other words, we know that there are two trajectories in the world. You can see this in Psalm 1, for example. Two, just two trajectories. There are those in Psalm 1 who mock the commands of God and they will be driven away like chaff before the wind, weightless in the storm of judgment in Psalm 1. And then there's this other trajectory, right? There's those who delight in God's law. And what happens to them in the end? Where's their arrow flying? They will flourish like a tree planted by rivers of water. Only two Ways to live, only two trajectories. John very much likes that kind of way of thinking. He uses much light and darkness, this or that. That's the way he writes. That's the genre of his writing. Is your Christianity changing the direction of your life? 
Is it changing the direction of your life? Not suggesting it, but actually changing it, right? And that's, we don't believe that that's meant to be self-generated. That's why Jesus said, trust me, I know this sounds strange. He's looking at his disciples. He's, it's going to be better when I go away. Because when I go away, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And he's going to dwell inside you. And there's all kinds of new possibilities because he's moving in on the inside. It's not external codes on tablets of stone. The law is coming in and moving inside. You're going to delight after him with your inner man. So the obedience test and then second, the love test. So that first test was, is your Christianity leading you in a new direction? This one is, is your Christianity leading you to lay down your life for fellow believers? For your brothers and sisters. Look at verse 9. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister, so we're talking about the church, is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light. Flip over to chapter 3, verse 14. He brings this up again. I'm not going to read the whole extended passage because he brings it up in depth. But look at just verse 14. Chapter 3, verse 14. We know, so it's a sign of life, we know that we have passed from death to life. How? Because we love our brothers and sisters. It's a sign of life. It's a vital sign. Flip over to chapter 4. He brings it up again. John's one of those guys who just keeps coming around. Coming around and saying the same thing, slightly different. Say the same thing, slightly different again and again. Chapter 4, verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. You see how it's not a, this is not a dimmer pack. This is a toggle. If you love your brothers and sisters, it's a sign that you know him. If you don't, you don't, right? It is, it is a toggle switch. It is black and white. John draws a line in the sand. He said, these are the Christians. These are not. So it's a non-negotiable. The, the evidence of love must be there, and it will be there because the Holy Spirit brings that about. Love for your brothers and sisters in Christ is a sign of life. You remember what Jesus said? Jesus predicated the success of the gospel mission in the world on the presence of love in the church. He said, the world will know you're my disciples by what? By the love you have for the world? No. In Jesus' words, they'll know that you're my disciples. They'll know that the Father sent the Son by the love you have for one another. It's this powerful, magnetic display of God's love that's seen in the church. And you can see the Roman Empire kind of pulling up to the, to the glass pane and looking at it and saying, who does that? Who, who does what, what this man has just done in Acts chapter 4? Sells a field of his own possessions and gives the, the money away to meet the needs of his brothers and sisters in the family of faith. Who does that? shows that it's real. 1992, author Susie Becky teamed up with a, a bunch of elementary school children to write a little book called The All Better Book. 
And the purpose was they were asking these elementary school children what they would do and if they were faced with all these vexing world problems that were very much on the scene then, and many of which are still on the scene now. Um, war, hunger, and, and so forth. And so here's how it got set up. With billions of people in the world, someone should be able to figure out a system where no one is lonely. So this is the loneliness problem. And then they're asking the children, what do you suggest? And here's Kalani. People should find lonely people and ask their name and address. Then ask people who aren't lonely their names and address. When you have an even amount of each, assign lonely and not lonely people together in the newspaper. This is, Kalani is a very practical, organized person, right? <laughs> here's, uh, here's Matt. We could get people a pet or a husband. Here's Max. How simple are boys? Make food that talks to you when you eat. <laughs> and this one I think is the most touching of all. This is Brian. Sing a song, stomp your feet, read a book. Sometimes I think no one loves me, so I do one of these. Friends, we've got better answers in the church of Jesus Christ than merely to say, hey, I know you feel lonely. Stomp your feet and read a book. The church of Jesus Christ is meant to be a community that opens its arms to the lonely. It, the, the psalmist says, here's, here's one of the things that God loves to do. It's a, it's, they set a song about it that they sang in the Old Testament. God sets the lonely in families. That's what the progress of the gospel is around the world. It's calling people into this glorious global family. If we love each other, the Proverbs, we just studied this, right? I think it was one of the most important, I would say one of the most important messages we've studied this year is the message on friendship. Because I told you at the beginning of that message, I have never heard a message on friendship in my entire life. And the more I read the Proverbs, I thought, this is, this is the magic sauce. <laughs> the scripture talks so much about deep companionship, friendship, fellowship, koinonia, life on life, care, 59 one another's in the New Testament that say to you, you're not alone. You got people in your ear, people in your living room, people around your table, people at the coffin. You got people with you, loving you, holding you, helping you. If we love one another, what's that going to mean? It's going to mean you're going to enter into somebody else's pain. You love somebody else, it means you're going to die to personal preference. You're going to absorb offenses. That, that's what it means to love someone else. I heard a pastor share an incredible story. He was talking to his congregation and he he reminded them of a story that many of them already knew, of a crisis that took place earlier in their lives, where they faced with their oldest son. And he said, when our son was seven years old, he had a tumor on his spinal column. And he said, we went to consult with some professionals. It was about an hour outside of our city in Florida. We went to, to talk to the, the best people that we had in the state of Florida. And we talked to them, and they said, it's a major deal. And they said, the surgery is probably going to take seven hours. And they said, he's going to need a lot of blood. And the pastor said, this is 24 hours before the surgery was taking place. And, and 
at that time, there was great concern, right, in the late 80s about the AIDS crisis and about blood transfusions and all of this. So they were saying, you probably want to supply your own blood for the surgery. And he said it was, it was the heaviest day they had ever experienced. And he said, so that one-hour drive south in Florida, back to their hometown, he said, I picked up the phone before we left, and I called the church just to let them know that they needed to pray and he said, that hour and 20-minute drive was the heaviest one hour and 20 minutes in our entire life. And he said, I drove straight to the blood bank. And he said, when I got there, there was a line outside the door. And he looked at his congregation and he said, it was you. He said, you were already there. And the next words were so powerful. He looked at the people and he said these words, in the body of my son is the blood of this church. Your blood is in my boy. That's the kind of community the gospel creates. That's powerful. That's glorious. And then he went on to say, why'd you do it? And he talked about the motivation of the gospel. He said, you spilled your blood for my son because someone spilled his blood for you. You know, in the early church, the gospel went further and further out and it went to places where there were radically diverse kinds of people and groups of people. You had Jews and Gentiles. You had slaves and free and rich and poor. You had Greeks and barbarians. There were deep, sometimes ancient animosities, centuries old bloodshed animosities between these groups of people. And when the gospel went to that city where there was all that diversity, people were transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. And they came together and they met at the table of the Lord. Sunday after Sunday, they broke bread together and they worshiped as one people and they called each other brother and sister. This was unimaginable in the first century world. They didn't have a name for this. This was a total mystery in the world. And so they didn't have a name for it. And what they did was they, they came up with a name. Guess what they called these people? Christians. In Antioch was the first time that the people of the way were called Christians. You strange people. We're gonna call you Christians. Is that what it's like in the church? Is that what it's like here at the Church of Brook Hills? Look, you might have deep struggles with sin and addiction, and you might be thinking, I I'm not sure, I think I need to leave my small group. Why? Why would you leave your small group? That's what your small group's there for. It's not for perfect people, it's for broken people because there's no other kind of person. We're broken people, we wrestle with sin, we wrestle with bondage. You might feel crippling shame, you wanna hide. That's why John is saying, come out into the light. It's where we all are. We're all out here confessing our sins. We're all out here a glorious mess, but we're God's mess. Right? You might have parenting challenges that you might be feeling. I, I don't know how I can go on. I don't know how I can open up. Right? That's what the church family is for, people. That, <laughs> it's not so we can put masks on and pretend we're something else. How is that redemptive? I love the family language that John uses in verse 12 to 14. Notice, I'm going to read it. 
Notice how it's filled with language of assurance right here. He breaks out into poetry. You can see the form of the writing is different. And he's talking about generations, right? I'm writing to you little children. Since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. This is packed. Both barrels are full of assurance. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you've come to know the one who's from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. I've written you, children, because you have come to know the father. I've written to you, fathers, because you've come to know the one who is from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have conquered the evil one. That is both barrels of assurance. And I love that it's situated right here where we're getting all these scans and tests. And he's saying, I'm not trying to unsettle your assurance. He's trying to bolster their confidence that they know God. He's going generation by generation. Hey, you know him. Remain in him. You've been forgiven of your sins. Remain in him. I love that the author J.D. Greer wrote, after he studied through 1 John with his congregation, he wrote a book with this title. Just a little book, and it's an excellent book. And it's called this, Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart. And he wrote that from 1 John because he he hears that melody line in 1 John. If Christians read 1 John and ask Jesus into their hearts every night, we're not hearing the melody line, the primary dominant theme of this letter. So I'll say it again. The primary purpose of this letter is stated over and over and over. It's not aimed at blasting nominal Christians who, by the way, aren't listening anyway. Right? That's the, that's, the, that's the challenge of pastoral ministry in settings where there's cultural Christianity. Is you can go hard, and you can go warning and admonition, and guess who feels condemned? The real Christians. <laughs> the actual believers feel afflicted. It's like, I'm not sure I'm even a believer. It's like, oh no, I'm not saying you're not a believer. It's the ones who are running out of the room with their card of eternal security well in hand, ready to do exactly what they were doing last week. That's the ones who should have been listening to those hard words and admonitions. But the ones who come away guilty and condemned are the genuine believers. So often, the message gets to the wrong and gets intercepted by the wrong audience. And so that's what John is trying to do. That's why he says, I think this is, I said this in the first message, I think this is the primary purpose statement in 1 John is chapter 5, verse 13. 1 John 5, verse 13 says, This is a gift. These first words are just a gift to Bible interpreters. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. I want you to know you have it. You have it. I want you to know you have it. So I want to leave us with two practical takeaways out of our Sobrook Hills section. So there's an obedience application and there's a love and assurance application derived from our passage. Number one, let his word correct you. Let God's word correct you. So I would encourage you, as a follower of Jesus, ask the Lord, is there any area where I'm withholding full commitment to you. And would you lead me, would you open my eyes 
to see that. Maybe specifically, is there a truth that's clearly taught in your word that I don't want to embrace because it's uncomfortable for me? Is there a truth I'm looking away, right? Or is there a sacrifice I'm called to that I'm unwilling to make? Those might be a couple of specific ways to get at that. Is there an area I'm withholding? And then on the other hand, so not just for conviction, but for your encouragement as a believer in Christ, prayerfully ask before God, what new obedience has been growing in my life lately? Ask the Lord, show me something that's going to encourage me. What's, what good thing is happening? Is there anything, right? Sometimes you ever feel that? Is there anything good <laughs> growing in my life right now? Particularly if you get sucked into the vortex of introspection and you're your own worst critic. We might need to get our eyes up and out and say, show me some things that are growing. Would you please show me one thing that's growing in my life? What new obedience? And then maybe even open your earthly ears and ask your brothers and sisters in small group, hey, have you seen anything? Could you, could you help me identify any evidence of grace in my life? And that leads to the next one. Encourage your brothers and sisters. Encourage your brothers and sisters. We need encouragement. There's no person in this room who doesn't need encouragement from fellow believers, from people in the horizontal plane of the church. We need human voices in our ears encouraging us. You know, here, here again is the problem of so much of the church, and it's a problem in my own life, is I don't see myself changing. Is that true of anybody else? I don't see myself changing. This, <laughs> our boys um, are back from college, you know, when they come back on break. And um, they can't see any change. But now that we've been apart for a couple of months or however long it is, they come back and it's like, ah, oh, your beard is thicker. Or, hey, you're, you're taller or whatever it might be, right? You can point things out that they're not seeing because they're looking every day and they just don't see the incremental ways that they're changing. And yet they come in and you can say it. So they don't see it. We do. There's a, um, there's a dear Japanese woman in the church that I grew up in in New Orleans. Her name was Tani. And uh, she used to tell me, I mean, when I was really young, and she would tell me all the time, she was a, like, uh, college-level tennis player. And she said, Matt, your shoulders look broader this Sunday. And she would say that like every Sunday. So it was ne there's no way it was true. But I, I, I would see Tani and I would kind of do that. I would kind of flare out. Right? It's like maybe it's true, right? She was just encouraging. She was looking for ways to encourage, right? So point it out. You need friends who will say, I see the difference. You don't we see it. We see the difference. Let me change the word picture. So the difference between running and walking. We're impressed with running, aren't we? I think somebody set a new record. Was it yesterday? Somebody set a new record and ran a full marathon in under two hours, which is apparently like an unbelievable, I'm not a runner, obviously, but apparently that is a mind-boggling feat to run a full marathon in under two hours. We are impressed with people who can run fast. I, um, I remember the names of two kids from my elementary school only because they were fast. Like, I don't know anything else about Jeremy and Michael Sperling, but all I know is they were, we played, you know, steal the bacon out in the recess yard, and I remember how Jeremy ran. It's a dumb way to run, but he ran like this, 
And so, but he was so fast. So guess what? The next time we were playing Steal the Bacon, I'm running like this, right? Just, he was so fast. I was just blown away, right? I wanted to run like them. You know, no, nobody goes to the gym, on the other hand, we're impressed with running, but nobody goes to the gym and sees the person walking 3.4 miles per hour with no incline, you know, and, and thinks, I, can, I need to snap a picture. Like, that's a life goal. I need to, I can't pull that off. Nobody's impressed, nobody's impressed with walking. And yet, so here's the point, right? The dominant metaphor for Christian progress in the New Testament is walking. Walking, listen to this, this is just a very brief sampling, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Galatians 5, 16. I say then, walk by the Spirit and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love. Colossians 1, 10. So that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. And right here in our text, 1 John 2, verse 6. The one who says he remains in Him should walk just as he walked. There's a book that came out several years ago called God's Speed. And it was about how fast Jesus walked. It said God's speed was three miles an hour. Slow down. You think about that kind of metaphor, unpack that. Sometimes Christians lack assurance because we see all the areas where we're walking and everybody else seems to be sprinting. Everybody else, like, and these people, like, in our imaginations, they're just absolutely killing it over there. They're running full speed. It's been 20 minutes, and they're going full speed. They're not breaking a sweat. They're, they're on the treadmill, right? They're slapping high fives, telling stories while they're running full speed. They're not even stopping to drink water, right? The Lord is their water. Like, they're just, they're completely good. They're completely unstoppable, you know what would make the, the Christian life so much more sustainable for non-sprinters? If we redefined the win. The win is walking. <laughs> the win is walk with Christ. Walk as he walked. What if there was encouragement for you as a Christian for every step of progress along the road of faith? What if people pulled up alongside of you as you walked and said, bro, you were crushing that last mile, right? Absolutely crushing it, right? You don't, you don't see the change, I see the change. And then they get specific and they say things. What if small group became something like this and people get around and they say, I see you. I see you leaning on God's promises in the midst of this trial, and it's inspiring my faith. It's inspiring my walk with Christ. Or we see you, we see you fighting against that root of bitterness. We understand why it's there, but we see you fighting against the root of bitterness. Or a small group pulls up and they say, seven days sober, we brought party hats. God is at work in you, bro. This is awesome. Or if they said, friend, that the courage that you're demonstrating against that act of injustice that was perpetrated against you, I don't think you could have done that a year ago, right? God is clearly giving you strength and power to stand. Praise God. That, that, I think that's the spirit of John's poem in verse 12 to 14. He said, look at you fathers. Look at you older generation. That's his catchphrase for the older generation. And he says, look at you millennials. Right, look at you young people. Remain in the faith. Well, what's happening in a church that gets that poem, verse 12 to 14? What's happening is God is fueling lives of obedience 
through a community of loving encouragement. Can that be us? The Church of Brook Hills. God is fueling lives of obedience through a community of loving encouragement. Look, if, if we're going to remain, and that is one of the dominant words and themes in this entire letter, if we're going to remain and we're not going to give up in the heat of the day, we're going to have to be that kind of church. So may God give us grace.